If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. It's on page 958 of the Pew Bibles. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. We've got a lot to get through today. It's the Lord's Supper, factions and divisions, different views of the Lord's Supper, New Covenant language. So we're going to be taking... 17 through the end of the chapter. But first, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we open your word this morning, we ask that you would provide the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, that we would see and understand your word, and that we would apply it as we live faithfully before you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in an age of electronics and computers, and it's increasingly difficult to find devices that don't run on some sort of software. And and all these things with smart technology are, are great when they work, but not so great when they don't work. They can be downright maddening when they stop functioning. And the very first thing, the the first troubleshooting step or action step to take is usually to reset the device. Now resetting is supposed to take care of the glitches and and the errors and the malfunctions. Sometimes all you have to do is turn the power off and then turn it back on. Sometimes, because a lot of devices have power running through them even when they're off, you have to actually unplug it from the wall, or take the batteries out, or disconnect the negative battery cable. And then for some devices, like our phones or our tablets, sometimes it's a matter of of holding one button down, or maybe two, or even sometimes a combination of three buttons for a certain amount of seconds, and then that will reset the device. But before it resets, it often asks the user if they're sure they want to reset the device, because Sometimes when you do that, it erases all the memory and and it restores all the settings back to the manufacturer's default settings. In 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34, Paul is performing a Lord's Supper reset. He is resetting the Lord's Supper for the Corinthians. There was a glitch in the way they were observing the Lord's Supper. There was an error, a malfunction, And so after identifying the problem, Paul performs a hard reset. And he does that by going back to the beginning, by going back to the words of institution given to him by the Lord Jesus Christ, the original manufacturer's default settings, and then he lets them start again. So let's read through this chapter together, this passage, and listen for three things. One, to identify the problem with the Lord's Supper, two, that hard reset with the original instructions, and then listen as Paul has them turn the power back on. So this is starting at verse 17. But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, is it 
It is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also declared, delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged For when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Well, if you remember from last week, Paul began his teaching on on head coverings by commending them. Uh, this week, he tells them he does not commend them. Why? He says, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. He's telling them, when you gather together for worship, when, when you're coming together as the assembled church, it would be better if you didn't come at all. How, how bad does it have to be before Paul, the, the Apostle Paul, has to tell the church, look, this would be better if you did not show up and worship the Lord together. He's saying this is, this is out of control. This is so bad that the only thing that can help at this point is going to be a hard reset. You need, you need to reach around and, and unplug this thing because it's not working. It's that bad. Let's identify the error. Verse 18, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. So for the, the phrase in the first place is not uh, identifying the first problem and then he's going to identify a series of multiple problems after that. We know that because there is no in the second place. There's just in the first place. So it's for emphasis. He's dealing with one issue from verse 17 to 34. And here's the problem. When they're gathering on the Lord's Day, that means when, that's why it says when you come together as a church, there are divisions. Divisions meaning a split or something torn apart, something divided. It's from the Greek schismata, and you can hear the the reference and the resemblance to our modern term schisms or schismatic. That's where we get that word. In this case, the body of Christ has been divided. It's been torn apart. It's been split. And as the rest of the passage is going to make clear, this division is along the lines of those on the higher end of the socioeconomic ladder and those on the lower end of the socioeconomic ladder. So the, the haves and the have-nots, the wealthy and, and the needy. And for our purposes, and just for clarity, we're just going to name it rich and poor. That's pretty simple, and we're going to stick with that. 
18 and 19, he, he said there's, there's divisions, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So now he identifies them as factions. So this means there, there are groups that have broken off by choice. That's what this word means, factions. Those who, through self-determination, through, through a conscious self-choice, have separated from the others to follow their own way. It's from the word heresis, and you can probably hear the resemblance to our modern-day heresy. That's where we get the word. So Paul's saying there's this split or this division among you, and it's been caused by a faction that's broken off from the rest of the group to go their own way. But there must be these types of factions in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Well, what does genuine mean? Genuine means tested or approved. And we can look to the rest of the New Testament to get some some more background meaning on this word. 2 Timothy 2.15 Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. 2 Corinthians 10.18 For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. And then finally Romans 16.10, greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. So this is talking about one who has been tested, one who's been tried, and they have emerged as faithful. They are, they are emerge as one who has been approved in the eyes of the Lord. So if we put this all together, we, say, we understand what Paul's saying. He said, look, there's going to be divisions among you. There's going to be these splits. And that they're going to result from a group of people choosing to, to separate themselves from everyone else. But for those who have not formed a faction, for those who have not chosen to go their own way, it's okay. Because in the end, it's going to reveal who those are who are approved of by the Lord. It, they're going to be recognized. They're, they're going to be made clear. They're going to be made visible. So in this context, those who are tested and approved are those who have not broken away. Those who have not joined in and abused the Lord's Supper. Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. This is again to the factional group. He's, he's telling them, look, you're so far off. I can't even call what you're doing the Lord's Supper anymore. I can't legitimately call that the Lord's Supper. That's how far you've gone. It, it, the screen's locked. You, n- nothing's showing up. Hitting escape isn't, isn't working here. You're that far off. You need a reset. What exactly is the problem? What's so bad that it causes more harm than good to gather as a body? What's so bad that he says, it doesn't even look like the Lord's Supper anymore. This is something totally different. Verse 21 tells us, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. And now we can start to get a picture of what's really happening. Because he tells them that one goes ahead with his own meal. And then later on in verse 3, when he turns the power back on, he says, wait for one another. So we can start to put this together. Um, apparently the, the rich could afford to, to purchase the food and drink and, and bring it to the gathering. And so they began to eat first, and they ate all of it. 
And, and again, to help us understand what's going on, we need some, some first century background. When gathering in homes, remember, there were no church buildings at this point. There were no nice structures for them to gather in. So they met in individual people's homes. And like if we were to meet in one of our homes, there's only so much room in the dining room. There's only so much space for people to gather. So some would be in the actual dining area. The rest would have to find seating outside of that in other parts of the house or maybe even right outside the house. And the wealthy and social elites, we're calling them the rich, could arrive in advance. They weren't constrained by any kind of uh, uh, work responsibilities or, or anything else. They could come and go as they please. So they got there first. They weren't putting in long hours. So they would have seated themselves in the dining room or wherever the best seats were. And also, one more thing that's really helpful to understand, in this time period, where you sat indicated where you were on the social ladder. And, and you can see this in some of the Gospels. You remember Jesus gives the command, don't, don't sit up near the head of the table, sit down at the bottom so you get asked to move up, then you'll be honored. And we see other types of references to this social positioning. So the people that were nearest the head of the table, nearest the host of the table, they were the most important ones. And so on down the line, until you get to the furthest away from the table, well, they're not so important. I'm glad you came, but you know, if you didn't, no big deal. We've got extra biblical accounts of different types of food and different amounts of food and different quality of food given to the people at the head of the table as opposed to the ones in the middle and at the end. There's some that say that the best and the most wine was given to those at the head, a uh, little bit less of okay wine given to those in the middle, and then at the end they got just a little bit of, of maybe some very poor quality wine. So here's the situation at Corinth. The rich, the rich were taking over. As the church gathered for the Lord's Supper, they bought the food and drink. They arrived first. They made themselves comfortable in the best seats. They started digging into the food and drink before anyone else, and they, they ate to excess. And then when everyone else finally did arrive, the rich group just kept eating and drinking. The food never quite made it out of the dining room. Have you ever experienced something like this? I think we've all been there when we're at like maybe a church function. Have you ever been to a potluck? And if you come in, let's say for the gym late and everybody else is already at the tables and you walk in and you see the spread lined out. If you walk down those tables, what are you going to find? A lot of empty dishes that have been scraped clean with a, with a spoon. Maybe a little bit of green bean casserole or some <laughs> jello or something at the end. You've missed out. So that's what's going on. The, we can imagine this loud, raucous laughter coming from the main dining room where people were eating and, and drinking to excess and slapping each other on the back. And then outside are the, the poor. Outside are the ones who, who couldn't get there in time because they were working or they had to travel or, or they just had some things they had to take care of. And so we have the the artisans, the bond servants, the widows, those from the poor all over, they're, they're the ones sitting outside not getting fed at all. And it would have been extremely difficult because of this class system for somebody like a bond servant to, to knock on the door and, and try to intrude on this inner circle and, and to talk to one of the wealthy social elites of Corinth. Paul describes it this way, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. 
Two extremes. Verse 22, what? Uh, this is something we can relate to today. Sometimes when, when we hear something that's so extraordinary or so shocking, that, that's kind of how we react. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? He's saying, look, if you want to party, do that on your own time. Not here. This is the church. This is the Lord's Supper. Don't turn this into something that it's not. Don't, don't bring the world into this Lord's Supper sacrament by humiliating, humiliating the poor that were despising the church of God. So this is yet one more example how the, the raw believers in Corinth were bringing the world and their worldliness into the church. We've seen that repeatedly throughout the opening chapters. Here it is again. They just haven't left their worldliness behind. They were used to it in the world. The rich were used to being first in the world, first in their community, first at social gatherings, first at public events. So why not first at church? The, the meals were places in, in, in social life where your personal achievements, your success, your wealth, your accomplishments were recognized. So why not have it recognized in church with this ordering and an inner circle, kind of a VIP room at the Lord's Supper? A sacrament that was intended for God's people to come together where believers participate in spiritual fellowship with the Lord and with one another. They were supposed to be coming together as one body. 1 Corinthians 10, 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. There's a lot of ones in there. They were practicing the opposite of oneness, the opposite of unity. So he says, what shall I say to you? Am I going to commend you? No, I will not. Then we get to the hard reset, verse 23. So these words now are called the words of institution because Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. And this is what Jesus said when he did that. And they should sound familiar because they're read by many faithful churches all over the world, including this one, when we observe the Lord's Supper. He says, For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you. Paul is an apostle directly commissioned by Christ. And so Paul's saying, look, what I'm giving you now are the original manufacturer settings. Uh, try to forget everything you've been doing for however long they've been doing it. This is how it's done. These are the default settings. This is, this is how it's supposed to be observed. Let's reinstall that software on the Lord's Supper. The, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus said, This is my body, not this bread becomes my body. And, and since we're here, this is the best time to go over the different views of the Lord's Supper. There are four primary views regarding the Lord's Supper. Number one, transubstantiation. Trans meaning change, and substantiation meaning substance. So change substance. The substance changes. This is the Roman Catholic view. Transubstantiation. When the priest blesses the bread and the wine, they actually become or are transformed literally 
into the physical body of our Lord Jesus Christ. They remain looking like bread and wine, but they actually are transformed into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. This is an incorrect view. We don't hold it. Consubstantiation. Con meaning together or with. So with substance or together substance. Uh, this was Luther's view. Luther came along, and remember he was the kind of pioneer reformer and, and the most well-known reformer, and rightly so. And he argued that the Roman Catholic view was incorrect, but instead, it's not that those elements change, but that the the body and blood of Jesus Christ join with, and the language that's used is, quote, in, with, and under. So the, the, the body and blood of Jesus Christ join in, with, and under the elements themselves, but not in a way that you can see. And the example that's often given for this view is kind of like a sponge and water. So if you take a sponge and you soak water and wring it out and set it on the table, you you can see there's sponge there and you, you can see there's water in it, but you can't really tell where one begins and the other ends. So that's that's the consubstantiation view. It's also incorrect. There was a reformer named Zwingli who came along and said, no, 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 uh, nothing spiritual going on, nothing, nothing supernatural like that. Instead, it's an act of remembrance. So that's all it is. It's an act of remembrance, kind of like a memorial meal, like you would eat in memory of, of a loved one who died. They only represent the body and blood of Jesus. And finally, the fourth view is called the spiritual presence view or the real spiritual presence view. This was developed by Calvin. It's the one that's still in continuation today. It's the one we hold to today, as do many churches today. And this view says, look, there's no substance changing going on. So he rejected the Roman Catholic view. He rejected the Lutheran view. He said, no, it's not that the molecules are are changing into something else or, or that Christ's physical body is being called down and joining with the elements. He said, no, that's that's not it. But he said, but I don't agree with Zwingli. It's, it's not just a memorial. It's, it's more than just you know, symbols. There's something else going on. He called it the real spiritual presence view. While the bread and the cup are symbols, they do represent. Jesus is also spiritually present in the Lord's Supper. So this is a time when the Lord Jesus, by the power of his spirit, the Holy Spirit, actually ministers to, really and truly, feeds and nourishes and spiritually strengthens his people. That's what's going on in the Lord's Supper. A strengthening and nourishing of the believer spiritually. These default settings continue. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So the, the new covenant, this is also called the covenant of consummation because it's the final covenant. It supersedes all other previous covenantal administrations. Hebrews 8.13 says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. A new covenant was necessary because the people of God broke covenant with God. They repeatedly failed to keep covenant with God. And ultimately, if you remember your, your Bible history, they were cast out. They were, they were cast out into exile. They were rejected because they were an unfaithful bride. Jeremiah, when prophesying the coming of the new covenant that Jesus is speaking about here, says this, 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Notice that Jeremiah does not say that the old covenant was bad or wrong. He does state that God's people broke covenant, even though he had delivered them from Egypt, even though he had had performed miraculous signs of deliverance and salvation before them, they were still unfaithful. They failed to keep covenant. And it is because of man's fundamental inability to keep covenant with God that a new covenant was necessary. Israel broke covenant. They nullified the old covenant, so therefore a new covenant is needed. This new covenant is not predicated on the blood of bulls and goats, but on the blood of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. The continual old covenant offerings of animal sacrifices ultimately served as evidence that sins could not be put away with finality. The blood of animals had no power to remove the sin of God's people with any kind of lasting finality. Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So when Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, he's declaring the new covenant between God and, and people as declared and prophesied by Jeremiah. And he's saying, this new covenant is established on Jesus on Jesus' blood, on the power of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And unlike the blood of animals and, and bulls and goats, the blood of Jesus does have the ability to put away sin with finality. Jeremiah 31, 34, this is the very end of that passage we just read a moment ago, talking about the finality. He says, For I will give their, forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So the New Covenant, as Hebrews and the rest of the New Testament makes clear, is much superior to the Old Covenant. Verses 25 and 26, Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the focus of this meal is on Jesus' sacrifice. It's what he did on behalf of his people for their benefit, for their spiritual blessing, for, for their salvation. It was all for them. And this is precisely why Paul is telling them that what they're doing is so far off that he can't even call it the Lord's Supper. They're, they're not doing anything on behalf of others. They're abusing the Lord's Supper. They're, they're separating themselves and alienating those who Christ died for, their brothers and sisters in Christ. They're ignoring them and dishonoring them. Paul tells them, look, look, about what you're doing with the Lord's Supper? No. No, that's not it. And then verse 27 sounds the warning alarm. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now you've probably heard me fence the table several times before. Unworthy manner does not mean that there are going to be some people that through their own moral righteousness and after reviewing them, their, their, their life decide, yeah, I guess I am worthy enough to come and participate in the Lord's Supper. Um, we understand that no one based on their own attempt to be good enough or worthy enough 
um, is going to work. You, you, we cannot have spiritual union and reconciliation with God on the basis of our own works. We understand that the particular circumstances in Corinth were that these, these factions, the, these, these rich groups, were separating themselves from the other brothers and sisters and, and excluding them from taking the Lord's Supper. So that's what, in the original context, prompted these words from Paul. But we also understand that although it was written to them, it's written for us. Yes, it's an occasional letter. Yes, these were the original circumstances. However, they're also written for our benefit. So when we take these instructions and these warnings and we understand them and, and uh, interpret them in the, in the historical church and, and today in light of everything that, that we know about the Bible, participating in the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner means this. Number one, three things. Recognizing our own sin and our need for Christ. Recognizing that apart from Jesus' blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We have to, to come to terms with that. If you're not in Christ, you're under the wrath of God. That's number one. Number two, repenting of sin and placing our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's number two. Not looking to ourselves. Not looking... And, and anything in us as the basis for a right standing, but turning towards Jesus in faith. And number three, a humble resolve to live in grateful obedience before the Lord. So for the Corinthians, who were, were are guilty of this abuse and excluding the others, they would have heard these words, and, and this should have been a wake-up call. And they would have recognized, we're not taking this in a worthy manner. This is so far off base, it's, it's not even the Lord's Supper anymore, and they should have repented. Verse 28, let a person examine himself then. Once again, examination is not a time of personal introspection and, and reflection where we, we think back on the previous weeks and we think, yeah, yeah, I think I'm, I'm in a good place. I think I've been good enough. I think I've kept myself from sin enough that yes, I am ready to take the Lord's Supper this time around. Or on the other hand, after examining oneself and, and reflecting, deciding that, you know what, no, because I sin too much or too often or too big. And, um, or, or, or maybe, you know what, I'm just not spiritually in the right place today. Uh, I don't, I'm not at peace. I'm not feeling it this morning. So I'm just going to bow my head in silence and, and let the, the tray pass in front of me. I'll, I'll catch it next time. No, the, the examining in this contest is seeing whether those three things that I just mentioned are present. Do you recognize your sin and your need for Christ? Have you put your faith in him and do you, do you resolve genuinely to live for him? Okay, then you need to come to the Lord's table. This is not a time of private individualization. And, and think about that for a moment, what you're doing. If, if someone does that, if someone's saying, um, I'll decide this week, whether or not I take or not take, even though they're fully in Christ, they're not walking in ongoing unrepentant sin, what they're saying is, you know what, I think I'll be the one to decide whether or not I take the Lord's Supper. For, forget, forget the elders, forget the officers of the church, forget what Christ has put in place. I will be the final judge over whether or not I've admitted or barred from the table. 
And, and not only that, I'll, I think I'll decide for my, for my own family too. I'll decide when my children are ready to take the Lord's Supper. For, forget about all that stuff it says about overseers. and I, I'll just do it myself. I'll be my own little king. Well, that doesn't work. None of us are like that. I, I think we all. I hope we all know that even my own children, when they were ready to come to the table, I just didn't just say okay. They appeared before the elders at the church I was serving. There is a reason Christ has put his officers in charge of the church, and one of them is to oversee the table. So I hope nobody falls into that trap. Maybe you've gotten some wrong teaching somewhere where where it's a time where you just kind of turn inward and get real quiet and decide whether or not it's time for you to take it. Um, I think I've mentioned this before. We don't have the authority to bar ourselves from the table. Okay? If you're in Christ, you are to take the Lord's Supper. Verse 29, For anyone who eats and drinks the cup without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now notice how verses 27 through 29 are universal in nature. We see that language, whoever, let a person, anyone. So this is universal language describing how all believers should be coming to the Lord's table. So this is a warning for everyone. Everyone who approaches the table must discern the body or incur incur judgment. So it's the, the meal that remembers his sacrifice. And the verse 27 is talking about the body of Jesus. That's the closest reference. So that's why this verse is talking about discerning the body. And it means the body of Jesus. There are some interpreters out there that say, oh, no, no, no. They're talking about the body of, of Christ, the, the congregation. I don't think so. That's not, how it, that's not how it reads. It's the body of Christ. So what does it mean to discern the body of Jesus? Well, because the Lord's Supper is a communion or a fellowship between Christ and between those who are in Christ, those that take the meal must believe and understand what it is that Christ did for them. They must discern the body of Christ. They must, at a bare minimum, understand that Jesus took their place on the cross. His body and blood were a sacrifice to make atonement for their sins. They need to understand at at least a rudimentary level the, the mechanics of that. Now, they don't have to use the phrase substitutionary atonement, but they need to understand what's going on. It's not possible to discern the body of Christ without understanding what the body of Christ was, was for. And that's why there's an age requirement on coming to the table. They need to be able, old enough to be able to discern that. Verse 30, now Paul returns to the situation at Corinth. After laying down that universal teaching, now he comes back and he says, that's why many of you, now he's talking to them again, that's why you are weak and ill and some have died. Physical, real-time judgment. God disciplines those that he loves, and that discipline can and does have consequences in the here and now. And here's the thing. It's, it's a lot easier for human beings, even believers, in the stubbornness of their heart to, to keep walking in a sinful pattern. Even when negative things happen in their life or around them or, or things kind of fall apart at work or something happens over here, everything external, okay. Even though that's going on, it's still easier to, to keep the foot on the gas and blow through the stop signs and just head on into sin. It's much more difficult when God touches our body. All of a sudden, oh, whoa, 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 hold on here. Either through an injury or illness, chronic or acute, 
some sort of disease. When God touches us in our physical bodies, that has a way of getting our attention. It's kind of hard to pursue sin when there is a physical reminder present in our body. We looked at the book of Job. That was kind of the last straw, was, was a physical attack. Verse 31 and 32, this is Paul's way of saying, do you want to avoid all that? Do you want to avoid the discipline and judgment of God? Then pay attention to yourself. Stop intentionally sinning. Stop abusing the Lord's Supper. If not, God will judge you. He will discipline you. And even though God judges and disciplines us, it's always in love. It's always for the purpose of turning us back. It's always for the purpose of rescuing us from our own sinful uh, patterns. And it prevents us from facing the judgment that is due the world. Verse 33, turning the power back on. So then, my brothers. He's saying, okay, all right, we've done the hard reset. We, We let it sit idle for 30 seconds or more. All right, now, plug it back in. When you come together to eat, wait for one another. Stop this nonsense of of eating and drinking before everybody gets there and excluding everyone. Stop turning it into a a worldly party or some kind of um, hierarchy showcasing event. Just stop. Wait for one another. Make sure everybody gets something to eat. Make sure everyone's served. Stop dividing the body of Christ as you partake of the body of Christ. Stop thinking of yourselves when Christ came for others. And finally, verse 34, if you want to eat a feast, do that at home. Do whatever you need to do so that when you come together and observe the Lord's Supper, you're doing it correctly as per the original manufacturer's default settings. And then he says, about other things, I'll give you directions when I come. We'll never know what that is. So it's pointless to speculate. Lord's Supper reset. Here's a summary. Paul is addressing the raw believers in Corinth about the Lord's Supper. He begins by addressing the division between the wealthy and the poor during the Lord's Supper. The rich were feasting and consuming all the food and drink themselves while the poor were being ignored and excluded and left hungry. Paul gives them Jesus' instructions on how the Lord's Supper is to be observed and the requirements for who may take it along with the warnings for those who take it without obeying the instructions are meeting the requirements. And he concludes by commanding the church to take the Lord's Supper together rightly as one body. I want us to draw three application points from this passage today. And the first one goes back to the, that beginning teaching at the very beginning of the passage. There must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Remember we said that meant tested, approved by the Lord. So this is saying there are going to be groups from time to time in the church, and it's still true today, that by their own choice separate themselves from the rest and follow some sort of false path. Now, there there are times when when this happens in the church, and, and usually it's maybe a, an outspoken leader or, or some kind of novelty teaching that, that takes people uh, by surprise and, and fascinates them. But there, there's always something attacking the church. 
Now there was a movement about 20 years ago that, that kind of swept through and it had a lot of popular teaching. It had uh, several best-selling books. It had some provocative videos that went along with it. I'm just going to read an excerpt from one of the authors. Tell me what you think of this quote. He says, where, where daily interaction with God is more important than institutional church structures, where faith is more about a way of life than a system of belief, and where being authentically good is more important than being doctrinally right. Now, I think we need to be discerning here. When, when he says that uh, being authentically good is, is more important than being doctrinally right, Jesus said no one is good except God alone. So what does authentically good mean? And also, I, I don't, we don't appreciate the way he's, he's pitting these things together. They're both good, but, but he seems to be downplaying the church and right doctrine. I mean, we're all for a daily time with God, but not at the expense of Christ's church. Jesus instituted his church. Jesus gave gifts to his church. Jesus appointed officers. Jesus gave the sacraments to his church. We're not to, to pit that against something else and downplay it. But regardless, that's just a sample. There were some believers at the time who, who latched onto this teaching and jumped in eagerly and enthusiastically and early. They, they, they latched onto this pretty early. If you've ever grown up by a, a natural body of water like a river or a lake or maybe you've lived by the ocean at some point in your life, if, if you've been young enough and you, if your parents were, were doing their job, they probably gave you some instruction like this and they said something like this, if you go to one of these swimming places with your friends, never jump in unless you can see the bottom. Did you ever hear that as a child? I grew up on the Mississippi River. I heard that. Because this really happens. Sometimes, maybe just under the surface, two feet under, there could be a rock or a piece of driftwood with a sharp limb sticking up. So if it's been tested and, and you can see it, that, that's fine. But if you can't see it, don't jump in. Likewise, when it comes to new teaching, if you can't see the bottom, if it, if it hasn't passed through the filter of, of Scripture, if it hasn't stood up to the test of, of scrutiny with the historical church's teaching, if, it, if, it, if it's at odds with the confessions, if, if you see a problem with that, don't jump in. Don't jump in. You could hit a rock or impale yourself. So better to wait than to jump in early when it comes to new teaching. There are going to be factional groups from time to time that show up. Number two, the Lord's Supper is something we take together. The Lord's Supper is something we take together. Like baptism, this is one of the New Testament sacraments. And every once in a while, though, you'll find someone who thinks it's a, a good idea to start observing one of these two sacraments on their own or in their small group or uh, in, in, their, uh, in their parachurch ministry or something like that. First of all, we have verse 18, when you come together as a church. That should be enough right there. That's all we need. The Bible says you observe it when you come together as a church. That settles it. That's number one. Number two, every New Testament reference to the Lord's Supper shows that it was observed when the visible church was gathered. 
Again, that should be enough. Number three, the Lord's Supper is a visible expression or representation of the unity among believers and how the whole body is one in Christ. And what should be obvious, it's impossible to represent the unity of the whole body when one group has broken off away from the body and are practicing it by themselves. Fourthly, Jesus gave his church officers, including teachers, leaders, to oversee the church, and among other things, to guard and administer the sacraments. When private individuals start observing the Lord's Supper on their own, they're bypassing the ministers of the word who have been ordained and set apart for that purpose by the church and by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Not a good idea. Fifthly, and finally, neither baptism nor the Lord's Supper are to be separated from the proclaimed word of God and the administration of church discipline. Private administration of the sacraments denies the inseparable connection between the word of Christ, the rule of Christ, and the sacraments. They're they're interdependent upon one another. That's more than enough to understand that the Lord's Supper is something that should be taken as the visible church assembles. And of course, no surprise here, this is where our confessions land. Our faithful summary of biblical truth. The larger confession, 176, says, The sacraments are to be dispensed by ministers of the gospel and by none other, and to be continued in the church of Christ until the second coming. Likewise, Confession of Faith 29.3, the Lord Jesus hath in this ordinance appointed his ministers to declare his word of institution to the people, to pray and bless the elements of bread and wine, and thereby to set them apart from a common to a holy use, but to none who are not then present in the congregation. That makes sense. That's biblical. So most believers probably wouldn't even have thought about, oh, I wonder if I should take the Lord's Supper at home in my own kitchen today. But once in a while you get somebody who's, who's yearning for kind of a, a next level experience or trying to recreate church on their own, and so they decide to do that. In that case, they need to come back to 1 Corinthians 11 for a Lord's Supper reset. It's to be administered by those called and lawfully ordained and to be observed within the visible assembled church. Finally, number three, a personal Lord's Supper reset. A personal Lord's Supper reset. It could be that the Lord's Supper has become something kind of dry to you. It happens. Maybe over the the course of time, it it seems to become just a little too plain, or maybe maybe a little empty of its original freshness or, or meaning. Maybe you're feeling a little detached, and you know that, hey, this should be a high point of worship, but if you're honest with yourself, it, it's not. It, it just seems like we're going through the motions. Maybe it's too frightening. Maybe it's too mysterious. If so, it could be time for a personal Lord's Supper reset. Here's what I mean. Going back to this portion of Scripture and reading the words of Christ and allowing the words of Christ to reset the Lord's Supper for you. To read the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and believe these words. So that means we need to understand that God is in the business of taking something ordinary and repurposing it for extraordinary uses. 
For example, he did this with the rainbow. There were rainbows on the earth before Noah and the flood. He repurposed that as a covenant sign. It's the same way here. There, were, there was bread and wine available long before Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, but he repurposed it for his use. The next time we observe the Lord's Supper and we hold the bread and the cup in our hand and think on the words of Jesus, this is my body, which is for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's the word of God that gives meaning to the ordinary bread and cup. Those things that we are holding take on new significance. It's not just bread and the cup. It's something that God has purposed for his use. They represent Jesus' body shed on, uh, died on the cross, blood shed on the cross for you. His body given as a sacrifice for you. When you eat the bread and drink the cup, it really does enter your body. And in the same way, when we feed on Christ and believe in him, we really are spiritually fed. The spirit of Jesus Christ is present and nourishing and feeding his people. Just as food and drink strengthens us physically, the Lord's Supper strengthens us spiritually. We are to think of the new covenant. We are to think of, of, of those in the past with the, the blood of bulls and goats, always knowing and yearning for something that would finally deal with sin once and for all. And then we are to think of Christ. Accomplished. And we are to remember it is enough. There, you cannot sin too big. You cannot sin too often. It is enough. Jesus is enough. He is enough for when we're on the mountaintop and everything's sunshine and bright. He is enough when we're in the valley and it's so dark you can't even see the next step. He is enough. And we're commanded to remember. Do this in remembrance of me. We are commanded to remember his death and sacrifice and how he willingly took the wrath of God on himself for us. And we are to remember it is not by our strength, not by our good works. It's not by us being good enough that we are saved. It's only through faith in Christ. So before the next Lord's Supper, I would encourage a personal reset. Read these words. Let the word of God reset the Lord's Supper for you. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this this passage that not only gives us the, the correct manner in which to take the Lord's Supper, but they very clearly point us to Jesus Christ. We thank you for providing the ultimate, the perfect sacrificial lamb. We thank you that he took our place, that you made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Father, we thank you that you've made provision for our spiritual strengthening, our spiritual nourishment. And we ask for your help whenever we take the Lord's Supper to take it in the right way, to take it according to Scripture. Amen.